Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, it's a two-guest edition of the show. Been a little while since we brought on a coach, so we fixed that with South Carolina's Shane Beamer. Beamer is heading into year two as coach of the Gamecocks after a surprising seven victories in 2021. South Carolina added former Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler. We'll ask Beamer about raising expectations while still being in the midst of a rebuild. Then David Ubbin from The Athletic joins us to talk about the aftermath of Jimbo Fisher versus Nick Saban. What's the difference between NIL the right way and NIL the wrong way? We'll also talk about expectations for the Aggies heading into a big season and where Fisher's rebuild stands in comparison to where Kirby Smart was at the beginning of his tenure with Georgia. There are some similarities there, but there are also some distinct differences. And at what point do the results need to match the hype? Plus, we'll talk about Jordan Addison finally making it official and transferring to USC. What does the All-America wide receiver bring to the Trojans? And how does it change, if at all, the expectations for Lincoln Riley's team in 2022? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com, where you can find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL podcast, very fine NFL podcast. You can also find us, of course, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans if you ever like to email the show send questions and or comments to ap top 25 mailbag at gmail.com that's ap top 25 mailbag the digits two five at gmail.com and away we go joining me this week on the podcast david Ubbin from the athletic david thank you so much it's been a little bit um thank you so much for coming on so I always feel like when we have SEC-type news, but that also has a Texas flavor to it, you are one of the best people to talk to because for years you covered the Big 12 and based in Texas, and then you started covering the SEC and you live in in Knoxville now. So I feel like if there's anyone who can really understand a, a an SEC story that is uh, also entrenched in in Aggie culture, it is you, David. So thank you very much for joining me. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. I think, uh, you know, Jimbo's got a lot of uh, a lot of South in him. You know, when I when I profiled him for the Dave Campbell's Texas football cover story in 2018, I was reminded this week that uh, he spent a good chunk of that time showing me some hunting photos on his phone from a trip he and his son had recently taken. I think they were shooting wild boar. Uh, I think that was right. Um, but uh, so Jimbo, you know, he's a West Virginian living in Texas, but uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got a lot of South in him too. 
Okay, so we are recording this on a Monday. The The big news from last week was Jimbo versus Saban. I, I don't want to go into a blow-by-blow recap because we've already sort of covered that ground or you have the, that ground has been covered on other podcasts. But we'd also be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about it. It, it, is, not that, it is not that old of news. Um, yeah, Jimbo went uh, big game hunting last week. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> I mean, he he landed the biggest buck shooting at Saban. I think let's let's think of it from from this perspective because I've heard this a lot. And Ross Bjork like went on a bit of a, his own little media tour. He called back all the national writers who called him. He said he wanted to be he he Ross Bjork is the AD at, at Texas A&M, and he wanted to have his voice out there too. And one of the things Ross talked about was. This has galvanized our players, our coaches, our team, our department, and our fan base, right? So think about what that means. Um, you know, Jimbo's had a good first few years here, um, but, you know, only one season that you would consider a, a really top-notch season. Last year, they beat Alabama, which goes a long way, but they did go 8-4, and four. Uh, in a year where they lost their quarterback. And that's not to say, like, Jimbo's been a disappointment, but, like, he hasn't exactly been, like, knocking them dead in, 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 at Texas A&M. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the arrow seems to be pointing up on its trajectory, but I also do wonder how much of what Jimbo is doing now, um, I'm not saying it's, well, of course it's calculated, but, uh, like, is buying him a lot of um, goodwill that his record has not gotten him. So this is such a really complicated issue because so a a couple things. One, I think there's an element of that. I think he knows when he was stepping to that microphone on Thursday, he knew, Hey, this is going to play very, very well to the people who I need to, I don't know if impress is the right word, but just gain goodwill. That was obvious going at Saban where you probably have the high ground there. Um, is is probably a good move on his part, uh, public rep- reprimand notwithstanding, I suppose. <laughs> but I think there's also, I don't know if you want to call it sinister or whatever, but we're entering into a new stage of college football. And I've, I've talked with my colleague, Ari Wasserman, about this, and, 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 and it's a key question. How do we assess recruiters in the collective era? And I think, you know, Nick Saban never said, that uh, Jimbo was cheating. He said he bought players. Well, but in the, the current but, in, but, in the current landscape, in the current landscape, yeah. though, that is technically legal if you want to get around the NCAA interim policy. Yeah. But we'll, I think what, we'll get into that the, the difference things, between legal think, and illegal. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the hidden parts of all this is that to suggest that buying players um, got Texas A&M to the number one recruiting class, which it, it certainly played a factor, no matter how much you know Jimbo wants to disagree, is a shot at, well, Jimbo's corking his bat in the recruiting game. I think <laughs> I, there's an element I of like ego that term. to that. Yeah, I like that. That's good. <laughs> and so I think there, I think he, he takes offense when he says, well, they bought every player. Well, then Jimbo hears that, the $75 million man himself, and hears, well, he's not actually a good recruiter. He's just, he's just you know, using um, recruiting enhancing devices, <laughs> aka money. So it's just such a complicated issue because there's obviously the personal aspect between all this. There's sort of this 
gigantic debate across the sport and these these line in the sand that are dividing these aggressive collectives and conservative collectives and it's just so fascinating because it's not just a personal spat between two guys but it it is but it's also kind of a battle for the soul of the sport in a lot of ways and i think there's a lot of people in the sport who feel the way that nick saban does and i think there's a lot of people uh who see things in a more holistic lens who feel like hey Buying players, what is the difference between quote-unquote buying players and buying Brian Kelly or buying Billy Napier? Because I don't see much difference, and a lot of people do. So, you know, it, it's it's fascinating. I think we should have a podcast where we can talk about this in depth, Ralph. Well, well, I, let, let's sit here for a second, though, when you talk about the what is the difference between bad NIL and good NIL. Because mm-hmm. Saban uh, specifically used uh, the term, and again, this is where, like, Talk about splitting hairs, and let's try to get into this. Like Saban said, oh, our our players made $3 million the right way. Yes. (laughs) Well, first of all, Saban clearly signaling, hey, come here, you can make money, right? So that's the other part of, like, there's a lot of hair splitting here. Like, we don't want to be involved. What Saban seems to be saying, and I've heard this from other coaches, is I don't want to be involved in a bidding war in a living room. Right. I don't want to be sitting down with a recruit saying with that recruiter or his parents or his guardians or whoever, whoever's representing that that recruit saying, here's what we could get from X. Can you top it? But I have heard from coaches, not necessarily Saban, Saban is implying this. But other other coaches I've talked to off, uh, you know, sort of, you know, off the record background have have come out and sort of said it more specifically is I don't want to, again, sort of get into a bidding war. But what I wouldn't what I'm not against is here's what our players general how, how our players generally do when it comes to NIL. When mm-hmm. once you get here, here's a list of what our players have done. Right. We have the records here. Here's by position, maybe certain stars. Um, I can assure you that there were people that you will be able to get in contact with and you can sort of make those deals. But all that stuff happens after you've gotten on campus. I had, you know, Gene Smith even told we talked about this Ohio State's AD. He was like, he's like, well, we don't really have to tell them. The players will talk amongst themselves and tell each other, like, you know, the recruits will talk to the current players and say, hey, man, how much are you making? Well, I got this, this and that. And here's who you got to call to get it. So that apparently is OK. But if I am a coach who on the front end allows his collective and boosters to be within the recruiting process, talk to the agent, talk to a booster and say, okay, we can guarantee, here's what the contract would look like if you want it. We can guarantee you this. That's bad. The other thing is okay. But really, I mean, David, that's, I mean, aren't we just talking semantics here? I mean, like the idea that the idea that one is okay and the other one is not seems like a line that that it can't almost can't be drawn and certainly can't be enforced. Yes. Well, I think too. I mean, Ralph, I think this comes down to one main thing, which is that everyone in college sports 
Well, I say everyone, because I think certainly there's an element of their livelihood being threatened by people who um, make their money off of the current business model of college sports, administrators, coaches, all this. They are incentivized to, quote unquote, protect against the good NIL. Let's cast them aside or protect against the quote unquote bad NIL. Let's cast them aside for a second, because quite frankly, I don't think that they are the most unbiased source. But when you look at this from a holistic lens, not as saying, okay, college sports is special. It has to operate in this business model that the Supreme Court smacked down. People have to rewire their brains and, and, and rewire their brains to remember that being paid because you are good at football is not immoral. I don't know how many times, like, I think people just buy into the idea that, oh, well, you know, Reggie Bush was a bad guy for breaking these rules or all of these things. If you are coming out of college and you have the ability in a business to generate millions of dollars for a business and 10 businesses are calling you at all hours of the night and they're saying, we can offer you this, we can offer you that, people would be celebrating you. They would be saying, this is awesome, man. That guy is doing a great job. I can't wait for him to succeed and see what he can do. But yet the same thing happens when guys that clearly have revenue producing ability coming out of high school that can mean a lot. And obviously, as we've seen in this market, markets uh, uh, start to take hold that have value that people are willing to pay. And people all of a sudden will say, well, that's not good. We got to protect these kids, Ralph, from getting rich when they're too young because they can't have too much money. They can't have this money. Uh, the, the nobility, Ralph, of protecting these kids from money, God forbid, uh, they be able to, to make their fair market value. I understand all of the negative things that can happen and all the things that they could pop up, but I, I, the, the still the level of demonization and pejorative tone that we talk about these kids getting money in is insane to me. And it's just so devoid of reality that people look at it through this tiny tight lens and lose sight of why is this different? It should not be different. And it drives me insane. And people just, again, they have to rewire their brains because what was once illegal and was not immoral should not have been illegal, but it was because the rules were immoral is now legal. And because the rules are written in a haphazard way that allows the free market in a backhanded way to start taking hold, people just have bought into this idea that this, this can't happen. We got to protect this. This is slimy. No, people want to pay these people, let them do it. And I, I just think that there is just, in fans aside, I just don't understand the sort of uh, why people feel so gross about this. I truly don't get it, Ralph. I don't know if you have a better understanding of this than I do. Oh, no, I've been in, in the same boat. I mean, when Jimbo went off in February – uh, during his signing day press conference, the traditional signing day press conference, because he was already getting blowback about, you know, sliced bread and the $30 million fund. Um, I wrote the day after, like, Jimbo should have leaned into this. Like, we need to get past this. And, and I, I get it from what you're saying, because I, I love your cork bat uh, uh, analogy. I think from a competitor's standpoint, nobody wants to be accused of not just not necessarily even cheating, but just taking a shortcut. Right. The implication mm -hmm. is that by using by paying players, you're taking a shortcut. 
right? Uh, you're you're not just you're not in, in here doing it the old school way and just selling the program and your values and this and that. You're taking a shortcut. So no competitor wants to be accused of taking of cheating, but not even cheating, but taking a ch- shortcut. I get that. But again, to me, I think part of the problem by Jimbo, as much as we got to get into this for just a second because I haven't had a chance to talk about it. Um, let me just finish with one thought. As much as I, I, I think that uh, I understand why Jimbo did what he did, I, I feel like his indignation actually fuels what we're talking about as far as like you got to get past the idea that that paying the players is bad. Like at some point, mm-hmm. somebody needs to step up and not be like a front a personally affronted by this idea. Jimbo could maybe like put your arms around it. But I understand why it's tough from a competitor standpoint to essentially be accused of either cheating or taking the shortcut. Now, let, let me just dial back here for a second, because I do have to I, I do want to talk to you about like sort of the reaction that you had on Thursday, because I don't know if you watched the pre- the the news conference that Jimbo had live. It was oh, I did. Oh, yeah. I did. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, David, I'm sitting there in my uh, apartment by myself, working from home, and I have this thing on. And every like every two minutes or so, Jimbo says, I, I, "My reaction is literally, oh, oh my, <laughs> like, like uh, my neighbors, because it's a small Brooklyn apartment in New York, so I'm sure they can hear me. My neighbors must have thought, what the hell is going on in there? <laughs> so I'm wondering what your, like, what was your visceral, emotional, like, take me in the moment to your reaction when you're hearing some of the things Jimbo was saying. I mean, listen, it, eyebrows raised, mouth agape, hands on head. I. I've never seen anything like it, Ralph. And I, and I think, again, we're in this new world of sports. And I said, I literally said, uh, I was in a group text with some colleagues the night that the Saban quotes dropped. And I wasn't sure where it was going to go exactly. But I saw it and I said, this season's going to be insane because there is so much complaining and anger and all this stuff happening behind the scenes. I said a lot of stuff that people have been saying on the re- or off the record to us, to each other, things that we hear. I was like, this is going to bubble over. And some of that stuff is going to start coming on the record. I, I said, this is going to happen because there's too much anger behind the scenes. Because I think, I, I think ultimately, and we obviously saw that, but I think where a lot of this stems from, and this I actually am somewhat sensitive to coaches on, is that a lot of the frustration around is, is centered around nobody knows what the rules actually are yeah. and what you can and can't do. There are these very thin guidelines, mm-hmm. the NCAA's interim policy, and then they sort of add these guidelines with like some kind of weird enforcement, whatever, yeah. that, that will maybe help a little bit, but, but not entirely. But there's these amorphous rules, and again, there's a line that is being drawn in these collectives. And some of them, like obviously we've seen Texas A&M, we've seen Tennessee, we've seen Oregon, uh, we've seen Nebraska do some really, really aggressive things. Miami, obviously, as well. And say, hey, we're going to do this because it's not written in the letter of the law. And there's other people saying, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't know if we can do that. And they're losing out on recruits. And there is a tension there. And I think that is where a lot of this, this tension comes from, is that the rules are not entirely clear. And again, this goes back to the NCAAs in action in the world of name, image, and likeness. Over the last 20 years, they had a long time to come up with a plan and did nothing. And now they have this haphazard policy that basically says, well, they can make money. Have fun, guys. And like, well, how? Well, so what can we do? What can't we do? And the NCAA is like, ah, well, 
have fun guys. Like, (laughs) and so that I kind of get that there's not a lot of clarity in terms of what can and can't be done. And that's where a lot of this is coming from, because again, the people that are aggressive in some ways are being demonized and the people that are, you know, that are being aggressive, see the people that are saying, we're not going to get involved in the recruiting game, pat them on the head, offer another six figure deal, get another four star recruit and say, all right, we'll see you guys in the fall. And that's kind of where we're at. So I've always been of the opinion, let me steer this to something else. Uh, I've always been of the opinion that there's been a lot of talk about what NIL could do to parity in college football. And again, like, you know, Fisher roasted Saban on that one, too, because about a week or so ago before his comments <laughs> about A&M and NIL, Saban mentioned something about parity in college football, which was, frankly, a little laughable. But I think I understand kind of where he was coming from. Well, even, even his redefinition of it is insane of like the players all get the same money. They get the same stuff. No, they don't. Like maybe they get the same scholarship and the, the same, but the food is different at, at bigger places. Well, the medical yeah. care is different at big places. Like, like this idea that even this redefined sort of twisted version of quote unquote parody that he's talking about isn't even real at all. I'm not even sure where he gets that idea. Maybe it's pretty similar at like the top 10 programs, but you get down to the bottom half of, of even power five programs. And unless we even start talking about the Mac or the Sun Belt, it's a different sport. So you know, beyond the on the field, which I guess he says he wasn't talking about on the field. He's talking about it, it, it doesn't hold weight if you press on it at all. It just collapses. But anyway. Well, right. And in the interesting one, maybe the 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 most stinging zinger that that Jimbo threw at Nick was let's basically let's see how you do when you don't have all the advantages. <laughs> right. That, I mean. that that one. I actually I, I wrote about this. I was like, that one is kind of not fair because. Yes, Nick Saban has all the advantages. Go look at the the program that he took over in 2008 uh, at, at Alabama. Well, to a certain uh, degree, he, he has created – he has quite literally exactly. created those advantages. He created like, these advantages yes. by, by the, the process, and I guess Jimbo would say uh, nefarious means, I suppose, would be a fair characterization of the innuendo that Mr. Jimbo Fisher was tossing out there. But either way, I didn't think that – oh. Uh, what was it? Uh, he's the greatest ever, huh? Well, when you have all the advantages, it's easy. Well, Nick created those advantages. So that's actually kind of not fair. And one of the punches that I thought yeah, Jimbo actually missed on, but he landed plenty others. <laughs> so uh, I've always had a thought that I understand that with NIL and when you incorporate, you know, who has the most money, clearly you're you're drawing a a. a, a a brighter line between haves and have nots. And we're no longer even talking about P5, G5, stuff like that, because that, that, that sucker is long gone. I mean, that, that horse is, is, is long out of the barn. Um, But I'm also thinking parity and money from this sense, because over the last few years, we've had, right, these, this consolidation of the best recruits, the really elite recruits are essentially choosing from a handful of schools and they're going and they're landing at Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson and a couple of others. But they're just they're clustering at a handful of schools. And I have always been of the opinion that if you suddenly add money into the equation and you can tell me that A&M's got more money than anybody else. And of course, Alabama will ramp up their money machine and Georgia will and all the big schools will ramp up their money machines. Yeah, how bad but, do you care about winning is the sort of the million dollar 
perhaps billion dollar question in the next decade of, of college football. But yeah, yes. But I also think that suddenly there are a bunch of schools that have had money, but not the other built in advantages like location, mostly mm-hmm. location, frankly, almost all entirely location that might be able to tear away some of those elite recruits. And here's what, I, what, I, what, I'll, what I'll put it down to, because people can say, well, there's no salary cap, but only one guy can be the, can be the highest paid player on the team, right? And at a certain point, if I'm Nebraska or, I, I, again, pick a, pick a school that has not quite, has been a little bit behind, has a ton of money and a ton of reputation and a ton of tradition, but for whatever reason has sort of been like isolated in, in the becoming a superpower. And if I can target one or two of these kids and get them because, hey, on my team, if you come here, you will have the best. You will have the best deal here. Does that create a little less of the clustering that we're seeing, disperse talent just enough so that Alabama doesn't not just doesn't have the best recruiting recruiting classes? Because the problem has been that not just Alabama has the best recruiting classes. It's that Alabama, Georgia and a couple of other teams have so much better recruiting classes than anybody else. They can't that nobody can keep up with them. I'm wondering if just the if you add money into this, if that creates a little bit more parity at the very top of the sport, and all of a sudden, instead of three or four teams competing for a national championship, maybe there are six or seven, because maybe USC can better get in the game, or Miami, or maybe there's just a few other schools that can peel away some of the elite recruits, and it, and it, and it, it, it decreases the gap between the very elite and the next tier. I'm not sure on that. I I think in theory that sounds correct, but it's, it's hard to know because I think ultimately if you are at a Georgia, if you're at an Alabama, if you're at a Ohio state, your money goes further. I mean, we've heard stories about this in the transfer portal and recruiting right now, the kids are taking, you know, they're still getting good deals, but they're taking less money to go to those places. So they don't have to have as much money. So maybe it kills some of the clustering, but then you have the transfer portal on top of that. And I do think, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves on any further topic, but the Jordan Addison situation is probably, I would agree, not good for college football that the Blitnikoff winner from an ACC champion decides, ah, uh, you know, I've helped build this sort of, you know, second tier program into a conference champion. Uh, now I'm going to go across the coast where I can have better money and better, um, you know, uh, prestige in the program. And, you know, my quarterback just left and all this stuff. I don't think that's good for the sport. Now, in the same breath, I don't think it's up to Jordan Addison to do what's good for college football. It's up for Jordan Addison to do what's good for Jordan Addison. Um, but the answer is not to put handcuffs on these kids. It's to find ways, get creative earn your salary to de-incentivize guys from doing that. And so that part of it, does it, does it, you know, my concern, I think with the, well, this is going to even out recruiting is that whatever even evening out happens gets fixed in the transfer portal. Mm, That's a good point. Um, Because you have those power programs who, you know, like in Alabama might say, Ah, we have some holes at receiver now. Hey, Louisville, you got that fast kid. Let's let's bring that kid on. Oh, hey, Georgia Tech, I know you have that all ACC running back that's doing great, but you know we need a lead back. Let's let's go just take this kid uh, who can come play at Alabama. I don't think that's good for the sport. Again, 
The kids don't need to worry about what's good for the sport. The kids need to do what's, what's best for themselves. But the sport has to figure out, okay, what can we do to de-incentivize where it doesn't make sense for kids that for when, how do we figure out, okay, how do we make it so that what's best for these kids is to stay at these programs that aren't all the five programs that are in the playoff every year. And I don't know the answer to that, but also Ralph, unfortunately I don't get paid you know, seven, eight figures to figure out the answer to that. But uh, that's, that's the answer. So as far as how does NIL affect parity, I, I really don't know. I do think it will even out the recruiting rankings. Does it, does it carry over to the field? I, I'm not sure yet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably a sad, lukewarm take, but I just think it's, it's too early to tell exactly how all this will shake out. Yeah, that's fair. And ultimately, as Saban even sort of says, l- listen, I, and this will always be the pitch that probably – no NIL deal is better than the pitch of here's my record. Here's how many kids we have in the NFL mm-hmm. and here's how much yeah. they're making. Like, I mean, honestly, like, you know, and listen, for some kids, for some players, the, the NIL deal up front might be more important, right? Because of a, maybe it's just more important to them. Maybe they just decide, no, well, I, I, I want this now, right? I, I, could blow, I could blow out my knee tomorrow. I want it now. In some cases, yeah. it may be family situation, right? They, maybe they just need the money now more than others. Uh, it could be what kind of advice they're getting. And for other kids, they're going to look at it and say, you know what? My family's okay. We, we got, I got some bigger plans here, and I'm going to go to the place where I'm more likely to be a top 10 pick. So that's and why— And dare I say— Dare I say, Ralph, that I think I have a sense that some kids on the draft stuff are kind of wising up to realize, especially with the rookie wage scale, where you get drafted, it doesn't really matter quite that much. You know what matters? That second contract. How do I get to that second contract? That's that's where the real life changing you know, generational massive, massive deals are. And then you look at at the Alabama history and Hey, uh, how much was, you know, uh, Alabama's safety from eight years ago, making in the league. I mean, that, that stuff, uh, everybody wants to get drafted, but I think the staying power of Bama guys in the league, I, I think has a, a major, major impact. Cause I think kids are figuring out again, I think the rookie wage scale is part of this that, Hey, being a first round pick is great, but there's only 32 of those. Which 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 program is going to help me have a lasting NFL career? Because that's what it's all about. Okay, I want to I want to swing back to Jimbo Fisher for a second and get back to on the field because as we where we started was again like Jimbo has built up a a, a big uh, stack of credibility by being aggressive in defending him and defending himself and his program. Right. Mm -hmm. And sort of uh, putting a and and being, you know, going on the offensive when it comes to Texas A&M. I think he's done a good job of that. But that said, you know, Jimbo has had one big season in four years at Texas A&M and one really huge win last year against Mm -hmm. Alabama. So. As I click on his, you know, on his page here, 34 and 14 at Texas A&M. Hasn't broken 10 wins yet, but, you know, to be fair, probably would have been a 10-win team in 2020, but that was a pandemic year. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, The team this year should be very good, but uh, I understand the greatest recruiting class of all time is coming in there, but they're still just freshmen. So I don't know exactly how much you're getting from the greatest recruiting class of all time. Uh, You still don't really know what you're getting at a quarterback there. 
I would argue that Texas A&M is probably better situated to be a a real threat to the national championship in 2023. But now you're talking about year six. So I guess I, I guess what I'm asking you, David, is like, where is Texas? Like, how soon does does the breakthrough, the real sustaining breakthrough have to happen where Texas A&M is sort of what Georgia is? Because mm-hmm. we can compare those two programs, but, you know, Kirby Smart came in, had a, had, a, had a rough first year, played for the national championship the second year. And we can talk about how, well, Georgia was kind of coming, come, coming up short, but Georgia's record looked a whole lot better than Texas A&M's record. So at what point does, does Texas A&M, if they don't come up and win 10, 10 or 11 this year, do they finally start to sour on Jimbo? Does it matter? Do they need a couple more years of stacking classes? It's just an interesting position for a guy who's had a 10-year contract and, again, has only had one really big season. Well, I think you need I, – I agree with a lot of the criticisms of Jimbo's offense that that it needs a little bit of modernization. I think that's a fair categorization. I think, you know, in that 2020 season um, where they went, I believe, 9-1 and – I think they ranked 113th. It was outside the top hundred nationally in yards longer than 20 plays. You need explosiveness to, to win and win consistently in this league. And you need that transcendent quarterback. But I will say ultimately that if you just keep reeling in top three classes, I don't think it matters because there's always that level of hope. And it's so hard to amass that level of talent um, on a college roster. And then if you just keep stocking that kind of talent, you get enough bites at the apple and then eventually you break through like Georgia did. Now, I think the difference, uh, I, I talked about this, you know, in the wake of Georgia's national championship game, but Georgia had a lot more credibility because in year two um, of right. Kirby smart, they, they obviously got to the national championship, outplayed Alabama in the national championship and somehow lost that game. That was an interesting year though. And I think I see where you're yes, going, but right? they took about, a, they took a step back con- and the, they took a step back in the years that followed despite all the recruiting rankings, but they had that credibility because they showed, Hey, we went toe to toe with them. And then of course they broke through last year. A&M has not quite had that, but A&M I think looks a lot like um, Georgia did the last you know, few years and that you watch them, you see these pieces and you're like, man, they got all these pieces. They got to put it together offensively. There's some problems. They got to fix a lot of that. But I think, I really do think that they are, you know, one all sec quarterback away from being a playoff caliber team. Um, they haven't really had that under Jimbo, you know, Kellen Mond was pretty good, made some plays, um, but he's not really a, a, a game changer. Is that Connor Wegman? Is that Haynes King? Is that whoever the next guy is coming down the line? I don't really know, but uh, ultimately I get the complaints. I get all those things. I think that the, the uh, idea that right now Jimbo has the exact same record to 48 games as Kevin Sumlin did is a, is a problem. Um, but ultimately when you're bringing in top, you know, number one recruiting classes, seven, five stars, man, that's that there is not a currency more valuable in college football, because you look at that and you look at, you know, Dan Mullen's situation at Florida last year. Why is there not the same optimism, um, that, that we've seen, you know, they obviously had a pretty good season. I mean, Florida had a better year, uh, what in 2020, well, 2020, what, 2019, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, closer to that than AM, but the recruiting wasn't there. Um, well, the recruiting's there for AM, and I think that that, man, that, that again, that is as good as gold. And I think that's where you, you have to put your confidence in because 
you can credit, you can rip Jimbo and get mad at his offense and do all these things. But ultimately this is a talent acquisition building or a business. And if you have that talent and you have a coach who can bring it in in whatever means that looks like, you better keep that guy. You better hold on to him for dear life. Okay. So, right. So the difference was with Kirby. So he had that breakthrough in 2017 with a team that was largely not recruited by him. And though I guess the, the great recruiting job that Kirby did in 2017 was he, he made, he, uh, he convinced Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb and a whole bunch of guys on that defense who could have gone to the NFL to hang around. That was the mm-hmm. that was the, the the key to that 2017 team. I also wonder if the biggest difference between Kirby now Kirby also went four or five years of stacking those type of classes. I mean Jimbo's class was this past class was the greatest of all time. So I don't know if anything mm-hmm. you can say, but nonetheless, I mean Kirby was basically doing top three classes for about four or five years, and at you and I and a lot of other people like just sort of felt like inevitably they were going to break through. They did. So Jimbo yeah. might have need a, a few more years here. I'm also wondering if maybe the big difference is Jimbo's in the West and Kirby's in the East. Like, in other words, if you just if Kirby had the same rebuild, quote unquote, rebuild within a within, within the SEC West with Florida not fully operational, like sort of operating at their best, which they which they haven't been over the last few years, if the records might look a little more similar to what Jimbo has. In other words, the, the SEC East managed to sort of elevate Kirby a little bit during his time when he was getting the Death Star fully operational. And the, but but Jimbo doesn't have that luxury. Jimbo's still in the process of, of of fully stocking the Death Star, but because he's in the SEC West, it's a little harder to get to ten wins in a division title like Kirby was able to do. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think these things change in a hurry, but if you just look at the last, we'll say three years of data, right? Man, the the SEC West, people all talk about Alabama. There's no bad teams. Like, yeah. there's no one. I mean, Mississippi State's had some some rough moments, but, I mean, they were in a bowl game. Old Miss is, is you know, uh, uh, setting the world on fire offensively. Arkansas, the last two years, has been an extremely tough out. And then a bunch of, obviously won a bunch of ball games last year. You know, people, all those eyes are on Alabama, but the bottom half of that division is, is serious. And then of course, I think you're onto something. You look at the East, obviously Tennessee has been down. Uh, you look at uh, Vanderbilt is looking like, you know, the Vanderbilt of old. Um, we'll see what they can do in the future. You know, Kentucky has gotten better, um, but they're still, you know, when Kentucky is what the third best team in the, in, in the, in the division, that's, that's usually, uh, not a sign of what we're used to seeing in the East. Missouri has been okay, but still not to the level that even they were under Gary Pinkle. So, you know, I, I think you're, I think you're probably onto something. I mean, ultimately, you know, the divisions swing back and forth, but I think people, when they talk about the West, you know, they look so much at Alabama and don't think about, hey, the bottom half of the West is way, way tougher than the bottom half of the East. I, I do think that matters. Yeah, I just think this, I, I could see this playing out in a, this season, playing out for Texas a- A&M in a way where a lot of people uh, who want to see Texas A&M fail for a lot of different reasons, be it be it Longhorns or just people who think like, boy, that program really thinks a lot of itself considering they haven't won a national championship since 1939, will be able to dunk a little bit on Texas A&M this year. 
because they're not a fully finished product, but we have heard so much about them. They have, you know, Jimbo doing his thing and getting out there and, and basically drawing a line in the sand on Saban and calling out Saban and all the talk of Texas A&M and their great recruiting class. I could absolutely see them going out this year and losing a couple of times and maybe ending up in a pretty good bowl game, but not necessarily where they want to be. And people all, all sort of like the, the, the people who want to dunk on Texas A&M sitting back and going like, see those guys, you know, call me when they're really ready for prime time. But the fact of the matter is the build is still coming here. It's just it, it, it's yeah. an interesting juxtaposition of like of the expectations might not be exactly where might not exactly be lined up with where this program is going to peak. But there's going to be a ton of attention on Texas A&M this year. And if they fail in any way, there's going to be a whole bunch of folks like enjoying their failure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit like the, the the Georgia, you know, get the 1980 jokes in while you can, yeah. because if you keep recruiting like this, you can laugh at A&M now. You're not going to be laughing when they're beating everybody but Bama and Georgia by 30 points, because if you keep recruiting like the way that Alabama or like the way Texas A&M has been recruiting the last couple of years, that's where this is going. And people wanted to laugh at Kirby Smart and Georgia and, oh, he's just another failed Nick Saban assistant or, you know, oh, he got to the title and they choked and then they took a step back the next year and all these things. Well, he kept recruiting, kept recruiting. And then all of a sudden you look at the class that they've recruited and you look at the defense they put on the field last year and it was insane. So, you know, again, I, I keep coming back to uh, not to steal my colleague, Ari Wasserman's mantra of stars matter, but it's a talent acquisition business and you keep doing that. Man, people people better hurry and get the jokes off because that 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 recruiting class is no joke. All right, let's talk about before we talk about getting jokes off. Are we? How soon are we gonna are we gonna be um, done joking and and landing and using uh, USC as a punching bag? Because the Jordan Addison thing yeah. is interesting. Yeah, the Jordan <laughs> the Jordan Addison thing is pretty interesting, and and I've said this before, like. I know that they still have more building to do. I know that their defense and their lines and all the issues or a lot of the issues that have have been an anchor around that USC program. They don't just go away with a magic wand because, you know, Lincoln Riley shows up with a bunch of skill position guys that said in the Pac-12, if you have an elite quarterback and some elite playmakers around him, that might be enough to win a Pac-12 championship. And I've, and I've felt all along that the key for USC this year is not necessarily titles. It would certainly help. Um, but to create momentum, create excitement, mm-hmm. make USC sexy again. Now, you have to win to do that. But I, like, I don't think, know, know, know if you necessarily need to go the highest level of winning to do that. I, I don't know. What's a... What's your timetable on USC here? Uh, how much longer I mean, I, are we going to be able to to make USC like the, again the butt of jokes? Well, I think ultimately it's it's. I mean, it, it comes down to a lot of why Lincoln Riley. Let's say why the side effect of Lincoln Riley going from Oklahoma to USC, and that is that the reality is that their road to the playoff is a lot less bumpy there than it would be maybe even in the Big Twelve. Um, because USC has the highest upside and, you know, we'll see what Dan Lanning can do at, um, at, uh, at Oregon. We'll see what Utah's doing year one. I don't know. USC is going to be fun. I don't think they're going to be able to stop anybody. I think they're going to win a bunch of games, you know, 45, 41. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong, but ultimately, you know, I, I wrote about this, uh, this off season, but I, I think 
Lincoln Riley being at, at USC can do more for parity in college football than just about anything. Because you look around at the SEC, you look at Alabama, you look at Georgia, Brock Bowers, um, you know, even Tua in some ways, um, uh, Bryce Young. These are guys that should not be playing the in the SEC. They should yeah. be playing for USC <laughs> because yeah, yeah. Couldn't, USC agree, couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, couldn't agree USC with you more on this. traditionally yeah. kept all these players. Well, now that Lincoln Riley's there, you know, they don't even have really their collective, you know, up and running and doing all kinds of stuff. He's recruiting mostly off the strength of of his own, you know, offensive uh, ability and, and pedigree thus far. So, you know, year two or year three, I think is reasonable to expect that they can possibly win the Pac-12. But, you know, if you can do that, you know, if you're 12 and one Pac-12 Pac champion and, you know, you, you got some good wins and maybe a big non-conference win, I mean, you can get in the playoff. Are you going to be suited to take on Ohio State or Alabama or Georgia? I, I honestly don't think so. I don't think they're going to be as good in the trenches as they need to be. This is where Oklahoma often had struggled as well. But listen, USC, after what they've been through the last, what, most of the last decade, not in a position to, uh, to, to complain about losses in the playoff. But I think in the near future, that's where, that's where USC is heading. I think USC's the most important thing for USC this year is its non-conference schedule only includes one power five team, and that's Notre yep. Dame. Like in the in the past few years, occasionally they've slipped in that Alabama game or you know some other big non-conference game, which you know that's sort of the way it is in the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 needs some of those marquee games, and if you're USC, you want those marquee games. This mm -hmm. was not a year for that. It was much better for USC as I as I open up their schedule to have Rice at home and Fresno State at home, and then we get to Notre Dame later in the season. That's where because again, if it's about building momentum, you're not quite ready to deal with Alabama and some of those SEC teams, and maybe even the best Big Ten teams. So build some momentum on a schedule that doesn't necessarily have an extra Power Five team in there. The other thing too about schedule, and I, I had forgotten about this until I just popped open the the, the schedule. Texas A&M Miami this year, which <laughs> that's going to be a classic. I, I mean, I, I think I, some of the some of the Tyler Van Dyke hype is maybe a slightly out of control, yeah. maybe, but he's really good, and I think that game is going to be uh, extremely fun. Yeah, I don't know if Miami is ready for like in the in the building process. Like clearly, Texas A&M is a couple of years ahead of of Miami, and Miami wants mm -hmm. to be where Texas A&M is, um, or or sort of aspires to be. They all they both aspire to be in the same places, but A&M has had a a head start on getting there because Mario. Uh, Mario just got to uh, Miami. But the simple fact that those two schools are playing against each other, considering how they have both <laughs> been sort of framed as, um, in some ways, the, uh, uh, let's just say, um, trailblazers in the NIL space. <laughs> let's put it that doing way. A, doing, a, doing, uh, doing 75 and a 55, I believe, is the... Uh, is the uh, <laughs> right. um, uh, analogy that I have heard. <laughs> yeah, it's just so cool that I, I forgot that those two teams are playing, and it's just so so very very cool that those teams are playing this season. Anyway, listen, David, I have kept you long enough because I like, get any second now. So apparently, uh, David and his lovely wife are expecting, and when I say they are expecting, like any second now. So they're, <laughs> pretty they're, much, there yes, could legitimately have, we could, uh, conceivably we could have just like live streamed the uh, David and his wife on the way to the hospital. Like <laughs> it's possible, it's possible. I, I I don't know that I would tell you if you were, but it's possible. <laughs> I, I feel like our listeners can can use their imagination. Yeah, but but that has not happened to interrupt the podcast. <laughs> How, are, are you feeling ready? 
Are you uh, as ready as you can be? I think. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, people ask me about it, and I'm always saying, "Well, I'm I'm not that nervous." But that's probably because I don't have to give birth. I'm mostly just excited. So we'll, yeah, we'll I, see how it goes. Yeah, I, think, I don't mean uh, ready for parenthood. Because let me, let me just tell you, whatever you think you are, you're not ready for parenthood. Because nobody's <laughs> really ready for parenthood. Like that's, yeah. that's just one of those things. It's like, it's like when you step into a new – like when you're a power five, like where you're stepping into a, a head coaching job, you're really not ready until you've already done the job. Like you, you don't know if you're going to be ready if you can do the job until you have to do the job. Uh, so mm-hmm. I can guarantee you you're not ready for parenthood because nobody's ready for parenthood. Well, it's basically the same thing as having like nieces and nephews, right? There's not much difference. Oh, yeah. It's all. Yeah. But are you ready for uh, David? I think we have to like, are you ready for that? How much planning <laughs> has gone into the moment of, OK, it's time we need to like, like put the plan into action. Uh, I suppose decently. I mean, I think what uh, I've had a thread on Twitter of my uh, adventures uh, preparing uh, furniture and toys and all those things. And I think ultimately, uh, you know, we've got the the go bag is coming together slowly but surely and uh, all of those things. So I think, well, I think we'll be mostly ready, although, you know, we'll see, I guess. Time will tell. What's in the go bag for you? In other words, there's something like, okay, if I'm going to be out of the house for like 24 hours, <laughs> an energy I mean, bar. I, I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it pretty simple. Uh, I think there may be some some snacks rolled in there, but a lot of clothes and toiletries. Okay, and then like you know a laptop to 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 watch something if we need to. So that's about it. Okay, I, I probably don't want to give too much of my wife's childbearing experience on the pod, <laughs> but just to give a little glimmer into what it happened with us. And not that I'm wishing this on you, but like we I'm need just- to turn this from the college football podcast into the birth story podcast Rob. i'm excited for this let's well see, let's see <laughs> just to, just to give you an idea of, of on the spectrum many different ways that this could go so we went to the hospital two times and were sent home mm-hmm. <laughs> during the experience during during the 24 hours before my my 40 36 hours before my wife gave birth because it was those uh, that situation of like i think I think it's time. Is it time? I think it's time. Okay, well, you know, we're, we don't live that far from the hospital, so let's just go. Okay, mm-hmm. folks, and, and then get her in and like, well, no, not yet. And my wife's like, well, I kind of feel like it's time. Like, why isn't it time? Can it be time? Because, like, I don't know if this is really fun. I kind of want it to be time. We got sent home twice. My wife was kind of in labor for about, like, not I would just put it this way. My wife was in labor for about 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty serious. So I'm going to not repeat that to my wife. Yeah. So I'm just saying like that's <laughs> that's a possible way it could go. Everything turned out great in the end. Uh, <laughs> happy, healthy. Uh, it, it, it all went fine it, it, when, in, you know, in the end. But it, it could be there are varying experiences here. And part of the experience is, hey, you're not ready. I know you think you're ready to have this kid, but you're not ready to have this kid. And that conversation is not sometimes doesn't go over well. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We're uh, going into this uh, hopefully less naive than we think. We'll see. (laughs) 
<laughs> David Ubbin from The Athletic does an amazing job of covering college football nationally. He's also got uniquely uh, positioned to talk about anything coming from the SEC that also has a Texas uh, a Texas culture uh, element to it. So I appreciate you coming on today. And really, seriously, David, congratulations. Good luck with everything. You got a lot going on with your family, and I really appreciate you coming on, squeezing, squeezing me in today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk about how uh, oil prices impact the uh, uh, likelihood or unlikelihood of an expanded playoff next time. Let's do it. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league Break down the biggest games and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcast. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me this week on the podcast, Shane Beamer, coach of South Carolina, entering his second season. Um, had a pretty great first season. Uh, Shane, coach, thank you so much for joining me this week on the podcast. It's great to be on with you, Ralph. I uh, appreciate you having me on. Let's start with this, Shane, because last season was a fascinating one for South Carolina. I know coaches don't try to set expectations, right? Or you got, you're trying to maybe look at what expectations are in a different way than fans. But I got to think even South Carolina fans thought last year, hey, man, we're going to be rebuilding a little bit. Whether we get to bowl eligible, we'll see. Uh, and then you guys come out, you, you, you win six regular seasons game, you win your bowl game. And then there's this feeling of like, we exceeded expectations. What a great year we had under, you know, Shane Beamer our first year. How do you look at that from a coach? Do you look at what you guys did last year as exceeding expectations? And how do you set expectations for the first year uh, with a new school? Yeah, uh, in some ways, I think we did, you know, um, Backing up, I mean, I got asked before the season, okay, what's a successful year for you guys? And I said to maximize the potential of the 2021 football team. You know, I felt like if we did that, we would, uh, that would be a successful season on it and, and not necessarily putting a win, a, a total on wins. And, and I felt good about the team going into it. I mean, I knew we had some areas that we weren't where we needed to be from a depth standpoint and whatnot, but I thought we were good in the right places. We had a lot of guys returning on the offensive line and defensive line, and that always helps. Uh, obviously when you uh, start four different quarterbacks, that's not ideal, you know, so we were able to overcome that for sure. And, and, you know, as a coach, I think getting to seven wins, winning a bowl game over a great team like North Carolina, winning three out of our last five, beating Auburn in Florida. I mean, that, that was some really, really good progress we made in year one. Um, by no means are we satisfied with that. And then like any coach, I mean, I look back and you just realize, Ralph, what a thin line it is between winning and losing. I mean, we won some game, we won some close games at the end. We lost some close games at the end, you know, that 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 
we had opportunities to win uh, for sure. But you go back and and uh, we certainly did some good things. We had a bunch of come from behind victories last year, which showed that this team's got a lot of fight and competitive spirit to it, which is very important uh, to me. So we certainly made some progress and, and have a have a ways to go, but but uh, excited about what we did in year one. Right. So listen, you, you would, you're not going to give any of those wins back, obviously. And I'm sure it was awesome to to get that kind of success because you're also building um, a winning culture, right? I, I think you know, to when you're trying to teach kids to win, part of that is having them experience winning. You come into this year, and you uh, we'll talk about Spencer and some of the some of the work you guys did in the transfer portal. Um, but does it does it put a different, did you change the trajectory of your build? In other words, do you find yourself thinking, okay, now we've accelerated things. We got to be moving a little more, a little, a little quicker here towards getting the, to these bigger goals because we just won seven last year. If we only win five this year, man, everybody's going to think we slid backwards. And it's conceivable that you could be better and still not win as many games because that is sort of the nature of the SEC too. Yeah, no, uh, to answer your question, not really. You know, no matter what we had done this year, um, or excuse me, no matter what we had done last year, whether we had won seven or won two, my thought process would be the same. And I love the fact that there's, I love the fact that there's high expectations and a lot of excitement about South Carolina football. That's what it should be. And we've shown, you know, what this program can do and, and the levels that we can, that we can win at. But, you know, honestly, every single season it's trying to work very hard to be the very best team that you can be and and every single day trying to get a little bit better each and every day is what my focus is on and then you look up and you kind of see where you are but you know if you sit around feeling pretty good about yourself or you sit around saying okay but we won seven last year we better win more this year that's the wrong way to think about it because all I got to do is just turn and look at our schedule and we play in the toughest conference in the world. And there's no question about that. Um, we're in the SEC East. So we know who we play in the East. We, our crossover team is Texas A&M. So we play them each and every year. Our in-state rival is Clemson. So if you look at the preseason rankings, I think three out of probably the top six teams in the country are people that we play, that we get to play. Like as a competitor, I love that. You know, you want to play against the best and we get to play those guys. But, you know, if you start looking at it, okay, well, we need to win this this year. Uh, you, you're, you're In my mind, you're putting your mind on the wrong things and, and you should be focusing on it elsewhere. And that's being the very best team we can be like today. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me hit the portal here for a second, like you did early on, uh, landed uh, Spencer, uh, Spencer Rattler uh, from Oklahoma and a couple other really good players, too. But I want to talk about Spencer because he had a super interesting season last year. Uh, he might not have thought interesting is the right word, but from an outsider, interesting is definitely the word I would use because he was so hyped at Oklahoma. Things didn't really work out for him there like he had hoped. But this is still a really talented player. He comes to South Carolina, has some familiarity with you and I'm sure other members of your coaching staff. And I'm wondering, like, when you bring Spencer in, what do you feel like he needs to work on? Did you feel like you need to, needed to build him back up? Where was he? I don't know. Mentally might be the right word for that. Uh, where was he confidence wise? What were the things maybe beyond just football? beyond just the on the field stuff that you felt like maybe you had to work on with Spencer that 
he that a young man may have la- lost last year going through what was again a season that I don't think anybody expected him to have. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, not much. Uh, really, my biggest priority with him was just acclimating him to our team and our program and the way that we do things. You know, I mean, that's not easy. You're coming in from a play a place that you've been for the last three seasons as the quarterback, and now you're coming into a you know, a new program, new teammates, uh, part of the country you've never lived in before. I mean, there's a lot of things on Spencer's plate. So the biggest thing I was trying to do was just more off the field, just get him connected to our team as quick as possible. And I didn't have to do much. I mean, Spencer and our current team did that. But, you know, mechanically, there really wasn't anything that we looked at and said we have to fix. Um, Confidence-wise, you know, Spencer's a confident guy. Um, you know, I think he, he certainly came in here with a chip on his shoulder and was excited about the opportunity to be here at Carolina and was really just one getting in here and getting, acc- getting acclimated. And then two, just learning our offense and how we do things. And he's been fantastic. And, you know, um, I saw the Spencer Rattler in 2020 that led Oklahoma to a conference championship. And I don't know what happened in 2021. I think it's unfair to pin everything on Spencer. I mean, I'm sitting there. I had the, when, when the game that he lost his job in was when they played Texas and we were playing Tennessee the same day at the same time. So I had never seen the, o, the OU Texas game. And it was on TV last night, actually. It was on the, the re-air of the game. So I was just watching the first half. And, I mean, Coach Riley made the decision that he did. But it wasn't like Spencer Rattler had gone out there and thrown eight interceptions and they were losing to Texas because of him. They got a punt blocked. Uh, the Texas took over, I think, on the two-yard line. Uh, Texas threw a little bubble pass, bubble screen on the first play of the game that the guy broke a tackle and went like 70 yards and scored. Um, Oklahoma had a tough time stopping Texas's offense in the first half. Spencer threw an interception and, you know, wasn't playing great. I'm not saying it was, but it wasn't like he went out there and they were down 28 nothing because he had thrown four interceptions. He, uh, he lost his job when he was undefeated coming off a conference championship and they were the number six team in the country, uh, you know, and it turned out fine for Oklahoma and I'm glad he's here, but it wasn't like his confidence was shook coming in here because of how he played. I mean, I think there were a lot of reasons that the year didn't go the way that maybe he wanted it to. And, and we're not worried a whole lot about that. We haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about Oklahoma. It's all just trying to figure out how, how he can be the very best player he can be here at South Carolina right now. Okay, so I ask this a lot of coaches these days, and that is sort of your portal philosophy, right? You know, um, how much do you want to go in there? Uh, What's the profile that you're looking for? Um, And how much do you think of it as, you know, from year to year? Do you find yourself thinking, maybe maybe this is a way to to supplement our roster every year? Are we going to save some scholarships? Now, this is all this is all relatively new and the rules are changing. So I think that your strategy could be changing in, in, in upcoming years as well. But as you start digging into like what we want the portal to be at South Carolina, where are you now on that? Um, it's certainly a tool and an avenue for us to be able to, to utilize. And, uh, we've taken advantage of it. I mean, Spencer Rattler, Austin Stogner on last year's team, you know, everybody that we brought in on the, from the portal contributed meaningful snaps, uh, for us last season. For us, we will always start with high school recruiting. Um, always, if we could sign, you know, um, 
used to, you would say that 25 guys a year. Well, now with the rule change, you can do more than that. But if we could sign every high school player and something and have a full 85 man roster with high school football players, I would, but that's just not, um, feasible in my mind every single year, particularly in a state like South Carolina that just doesn't have the population that California and Texas and Georgia and some of those schools do. There's just, it's not knocking South Carolina. It's just a fact. We have fewer division power five SEC football players that graduate from this state than other states do. Uh, so we always want to start with high school recruiting and then be able to go into the surrounding areas and recruit, which, which we, which we do. And we have, but I think the one thing the portal's done is, is if you're going to sign, let's say three running backs and you're always going to start with high school recruiting and let's say to sign three, you're going to offer six guys, six running backs, a scholarship with the hopes that, okay, we, we're, we, we get three of them. Well, if you don't, uh, now the transfer portal allows you another avenue. Okay. We didn't get it done in high school recruiting, but we need to sign a guy at this position. What's available in the portal. That happened to us last year. Defensive end position for us was a major, 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 major need in recruiting. And we did not sign the number of guys there that we needed to. We didn't get it done. Our defensive end recruiting, frankly. And uh, now though, we were able to go out and sign Terrell Dawkins from NC state to come in here as a defensive end to help us with our pass rush, you know, for example. Um, so I think in those situations, that's how we want to utilize it. But uh, we don't, as we sit here today in May, we're not sitting here saying, okay, we're going to hit the portal for this position, this position, and this position. I think it's more you get to the end of the season, kind of see what happens in recruiting, and, uh, and then you go from there. But it also, maybe it's a position where you know you're going to be ex extremely young at in 2023 and you can go out there and maybe find an older guy to, to help you. I think the quarterback position in Spencer, that's one thing Spencer's done for us is just the experience at that position because we're young in that room. If you look at our quarterback room right now, we've got uh, five quarterbacks on scholarship, I believe right now. Spencer's one of them, uh, Luke Doty, uh, who he'll be going into his third year in our program, but he really hasn't been a full-time quarterback except for one of those years because in 2020 he was playing some receiver and some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we've got three freshmen, one that was here last year and two that will be their first year of college football this season. So without Spencer, we're really, really, really young in that room. Spencer, we're able to utilize the transfer portal to get a really good player here, but also to add some experience to that room also. And I like being able to, to, uh, to do that also with the transfer portal. Yeah, it's, it's getting hard to have any kind of quarterback depth that has any kind of experience these days in college football. As you know, you know, listen, I hope I know you want all of your guys to stay at South Carolina and you hope that they'll all be there. But the reality is. There's probably at least one guy in your room right now who will decide, you know what, I'm better off going somewhere else because that's sort of the, the reality of college football. Let me ask you about something else, something else in terms of uh, you mentioned some like roster construction and the new rules here going forward. Uh, we're blowing up that 25 initial counter cap and you can now, you know, it's sort of a little uh, back to the future, right? Like the, the, when we, we used to talk about oversigning. Now, I know this is not oversigning because there won't be a cap. But there'll be you, you might be able to go out and sign 40 guys in a year. Coaches generally were supportive of this. This was a this was a proposal that flowed through the AFCA. 
And, um, you know, I understand the reasons why, but I've also talked to some coaches who were like, you know, especially maybe the ones who aren't at SEC schools who are like, you know, when the SEC schools were limited, that's how players sort of trickled down to us. <laughs> so if they can't sign them all, we get a few of those. So I'm wondering just from your perspective, not just from what you want to do at South Carolina, but when you sort of think of the big picture here, were there downsides to this, that, that idea of lifting the initial 25 counter uh, 20 initial 25 counter cap? I don't think so. Like I, I read the stuff and I hear the stuff where it's going to encourage schools to run more players off. So you can run guys yeah. out of here. That there is that play. thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hear that and, and I don't think that, I mean, I think every year, every year you have conversations with the players on your team, or at least I do. I mean, I meet with every single player on our team individually. So I got a hundred guys that roll that come through this office after spring practice. And we talk about, where they are and what their role is going forward. And are they going to play this year? Are they in a position where it's probably not going to happen this year? Are they going to be a backup? And a lot of times after those conversations, some guys decide to, to explore other opportunities, you know, that's part of it. And, you know, we always want to help our guys be successful uh, on and off the field. For me, I just look at it, Ralph, as, as, um, I put myself back in the situation that I was when I got hired and we went, we started last season, the 2021 football season, we started the year uh, less than the 85 scholarship limit that we were allowed to have. I think we had, I want to say we had like 79 players, 79 scholarship football players on our team when we started the football season. So now that becomes a safety issue. That becomes a competitive issue when you're allowed to have 85 guys on scholarship, but I couldn't do it because I had used all the initials. Mm -hmm. um, and the previous staff had used one or two initials uh, for my, for, for the, for that class, 2021 on some kids they recruited the year before. So, you know, the 25 initials, I think I got hired and we had 23. And then by the time we, brought in a class and, and, and signed a class, I was done with initials and still wasn't at the 85. So I love the rule just from a competitive situation like that standpoint. And I've read articles where, you know, there's coaches that are, were, are in worse shape or have been in worse shape, you know, from a scholarship standpoint because of that. So I like it. I see a lot of positives in it. I don't think any coach is just trying to run guys out of their program that, that can't play. I mean, we, we, I'm not at least, you know, but we're always going to be honest with guys on, on where they stand. Also. Well, I would think and listen, in this day and age, when the players have more power than ever to leave, it, it's not just running off. You're not just running off a player. If you, if a coach were to do that, right. You're also running off a friend, right. Yeah. Of, of the other player. Like, in other words, if that's the way you're going to run your program, then there are going to be consequences to that. Because yeah. because other players are going to see that, no question, no question. I uh, but I thought of it this year. I mean, we had some guys that I didn't run anybody off. I met with a couple of guys that were older players that had been in this program for a while. That you know, at their position, they weren't going to be in the top five probably of the rotation at their position. And told them like, I want you back. I don't want you going anywhere. I'd be an idiot to run good players off 
out of this program, but there's some guys that are ahead of you right now. And if you want to play because it's your last year, or a couple years left of football, I understand it and had great relationships with those guys still do help them find landing spots. You know, they called me when they found a landing spot because they were so excited about where they were going. But you're also thinking about that, like, hey, these guys are are really, really close with a lot of the guys on this team as well. And, and you know, I think for us, Ralph, it's just constantly being honest. You know, there's no secrets in this building. There's not saying one thing and doing another from me down, the head coach down throughout the rest of the staff. And our players know that, that they can trust us and we're always going to be honest with them. And and, um, you know, and I know they appreciate that. All right. Well, I know your days are busy, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, Shane. Uh, but as anybody who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure knows, Shane Beamer is the son of Frank Beamer, the former Virginia Tech coach, Hall of Famer, uh, a uniquely uh, humble, great coach. Uh, I think that's a fair way to describe your dad. Um, I'm wondering how much you... Listen, how much how much do you talk to your dad about football, about coaching, about being a head coach these days? Um, What's that? What's your relationship like with him, him with him now, as far as trying to use him as a source of knowledge? Um, It's certainly great to have that resource available. I think he's more invested in being granddad than he is football (laughs) coach right now. Good Um, for him. Good for him. So my wife and I, we have three children. My sister lives in Charlotte with her husband. She has three children. So he and my mom, they got six grandkids within an hour and a half of each other. Uh, so he he um, he loves coming down and, and, and hanging out with them and being around. Uh, you know, he's very aware of what's going on. I don't think he's calling. I'm not he's not calling me up and and giving me advice. But I know that anytime I call him, he's very willing and welcoming to. Uh, answer my questions and, and particularly early on, you know, and when I first got hired and, you know, you're putting together a staff and, and, and things like that. And a lot of the things that a lot of the things that we do in this program on and off the field, whether it be the way we practice or the way that I handle things, so much of that came from him. I mean, I've taken from all the coaches that I've been around, but a lot of it, you know, um, I played for him for five years in college. I coached for him, five years when I was an assistant and I've been his son now for 45 years. So, I mean, there's so much that you just learn from just being around him and watching him that uh, a lot of things I don't have to call him because I already know what his answer is going to be if I do call him type thing. Um, But there's definitely, he's definitely loves special teams. Uh, So Pete Limbo is our special teams coach and has done a, he's a fantastic special teams coach and has been a head coach. So I do, I tell the story after my last game or after my first game, excuse me, we beat, we beat Eastern Illinois. It's my first game ever as a head football coach in college and hugging family and stuff on the field. And I'm walking off the field and I still haven't seen my dad. And I finally spot him as I'm walking off the field and he's over there huddled up on the sideline and like, conversation with Pete Limbo about special teams because we had blocked a couple punts that night against Eastern Illinois. And it was one of those, Hey dad, it's kind of a pat me on the back. Hey, congratulations. And then he went right back to talking to Pete about special teams. So he, uh, he definitely hasn't veered too far from, from that love uh, as well, but no, it's great to have that resource there when I need it. 
Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, good. Listen, Shane, good luck to you going forward. I know it's a busy offseason. There is really is no offseason in college football. Best to your dad. Shane Beamer is the second year coach of South Carolina coming off a seven win season going into a 2022 with Spencer Rattler, really intriguing team. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Shane. Thanks so much for having me on, Ralph. Hope to do it again soon. And now three and out. First down. I try not to get too much into the 365 draft cycle that sucks up a fair amount of oxygen when talking about college football, but I would be remiss not to keep an eye on who the NFL has their eyes on heading into a season. I think the draft gurus tend to do a pretty good job of ferreting out what scouts are thinking about players when it comes to preseason. While we might roll our eyes at the way too early mock drafts, the fact of the matter is a lot of those players will end up being selected in the first round or the first couple of rounds next year. With all that said, let's talk about Kentucky quarterback Will Levis for a second. There is already a lot of buzz about Levis being not only a possible first rounder next year, but a high first rounder and maybe even QB1 in a draft class that will almost certainly include Bryce Young from Alabama, and C.J. Stroud from Ohio State. At 6'3", 230, Levis is athletic and looks the part. He had a really nice season for Kentucky last year, playing in an offense that was mostly run-heavy and against many opponents where the focus was on getting the ball out quickly with some shorter throws. He played behind an excellent offensive line, though probably one better suited for run blocking than pass blocking. He also had a receiver in Wondell Robinson who was selected in the second round of this pass draft. So it's not as if Levis was without weapons. Now, if you take just games against Power 5 competition— Levis ranked 8th in the SEC in passing efficiency and tied for 8th in yards per pass. I know Levis played for an offensive coordinator, a former NFL assistant last year in Liam Cohen, who is from the Sean McVay tree. Now, maybe that helped create a buzz in the league about Levis. He might be ready to take a Kenny Pickett or Joe Burrow-esque leap to stardom in 2022. And if he does, watch out for Kentucky to make a serious challenge at Georgia in the SEC East. But as of right this moment, the hype around Levis doesn't quite match what my eyes have seen and what the numbers suggest. Second down. One last thing about Levis, if he does really blow up this season, a lot of folks who root for Penn State are going to be really salty about how James Franklin and his staff let Levis walk out the door so the Nittany Lions could hitch their wagon to Sean Clifford for four years. Third down, the other bit of news we missed last week follows up on our conversation with Andrea Adelson of ESPN on the last pod. We talked about how the ACC was poised to dump its divisional structure as soon as the NCAA gave clearance. That happened last Wednesday, and then the Pac-12 jumped to the head of the line and announced it was trashing its divisions effective immediately. I think the Pac-12 race becomes even more interesting this season when you toss out divisions. Utah and Oregon 
are the clear favorites and defending division champs, by the way. Obviously, USC is the major wild card with a retooled roster and new coaching staff. If USC is capable of a quick turnaround under Lincoln Riley, then the fact that the Trojans don't play Oregon while Utah does could be pretty significant in sorting out the top two spots in that conference. Beyond those three, the Pac-12 looks like a mishmash of teams in transition or teams that are kind of just mediocre this year. And hell, USC and Oregon are also in transition with new coaches. The fact of the matter is the Pac-12 being soft in the middle could work out well for the conference this year. If it allows one of its teams to truly, one of its top teams, to truly assert itself and run through the league unbeaten. That's the best case scenario for the Pac-12. But of course, when was the last time the best case scenario worked out for the Pac-12? That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.